We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. You know, it's a common misconception that drinking eight glasses of water a day is enough for healthy hydration. But sweat consists of water and sodium, which means that you need water plus electrolytes to stay properly hydrated. Thankfully, there are products like Element that have all your electrolyte needs covered. You can try an Element Recharge Sample Pack by going to drinklmnt.com slash Alexi for only the cost of shipping. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalston. Welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking, well, of course, USA-Mexico, an epic USA-Mexico edition. We'll be talking the Euros 2020, I guess is what we're calling it. Uh, we will be talking Copa America 2021. We'll be talking a little bit of Gold Cup and Streets of Fire and all sorts of different stuff out there. I, I Usually I write it down, but there's just so much stuff. Uh, and obviously a lot of it is focused on this U.S.-Mexico craziness that we saw that we're going to dig right into that. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, June 7th, the day after? USA, Mexico. I'm doing well after a rare weekend off where I got to watch soccer strictly for pleasure uh, and not for work. How does it how does it differ when you are watching the game for pleasure as opposed to uh, for work? Is it is it I mean does it how does it manifest? Do you do you go someplace different? Do you sit differently? Do you have a computer with you or with not with you or how does it change? Well, for one, I don't have former U.S. national team players asking me annoying questions throughout the game. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, I got a nice little setup here in the living room where I, I can kind of lay out and, uh, and enjoy the game. And yeah, you know, working in the business, you, you sort of think a little bit about how different networks do things and compare and contrast and all that. But for the most part, I'm able to kind of shut off that part of my brain and just enjoy the game. Good, good. Well, I'm glad uh, that you did. Um, watch anything interesting this week? I did actually. Uh, I watched the Sir Alex Ferguson documentary, uh, which was recommended to me by uh, our good friend Jason Wormser, uh, host of the Wormcast, which I believe you've been a, a guest yep. on. Correct. Yep. You I have check not. It out. Yet. It's always fun. He talks about a lot of things, uh, sports and soccer related, but uh, also the industry related because he's uh, been in our industry for a long time. 
Yeah, I'm still waiting for that call. It hasn't come yet, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, but no, um, it, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was incredibly well done. You've seen it, right? I, I saw it this week. It's one of my, it's one of the things I saw. I watched what I watched a bunch of stuff this week. But oh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that yes. was one of Sir Alex Ferguson. Never give in is what it's called right now. You can find it on uh, Paramount plus. I think. Yeah. Which for those who haven't seen the conceit of it is uh, he had a, a major health scare in 2018 uh, brain issue. And his, his main concern was losing his memory because he's lived this incredible life and experienced so many amazing things. And, and, and he really cherishes those memories and he didn't want to, you know, have to live without remembering all these things that happened to him. And, uh, and so he takes us through all those memories because fortunately he came out of that health scare with his memory still intact. And so it's the documentary is him reflecting on his incredible life from his childhood in Glasgow and growing up. And I, t- I found the pre Manchester United stuff, absolutely fascinating. His playing career, Rangers, that whole issue with his wife being a Catholic, and then uh, his managerial success at Aberdeen, which to me elevates him even more. I mean, obviously what he did at Manchester United is what makes him this transcendent figure. But, you know, you you tend to forget that he also had major success at another place and really broke up that Celtic Rangers duopoly. And and Aberdeen was the major force in Scottish football there for several years, including beating Real Madrid in a European final. So, uh, now nah, he is an absolute legend and fascinating to hear him talk about the game. So I, I loved it. I love this documentary. I did enjoy it uh, too. I'm, I'm, it's not the greatest thing I've ever seen, uh, but I would certainly recommend it. Uh, it should be noted too that his his son was uh, the producer and I guess the director of this, and so you have to kind of factor that in. I think you got to know the man more. Uh, and to your point, a lot of the, the archival type of footage and to see him not just as a, as a coach, but as a young man and to, to, to learn more about him from a personal perspective, I thought was interesting. But I also think that there was probably a lot of stuff that was uh, either swept uh, aside or just I, I don't I don't necessarily think that we found everything. And you know, that's sometimes to be expected. And everybody comes with their 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 biases and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, some of the some of the machine and the fuel that I think made Sir Alex Ferguson what he was, was, was kind of glossed over. And the personal relationships and the sacrifices that he made were just kind of, well, he was at work and he missed out on a lot of things growing up. So, I mean, which, which kind of just hits the surface on a lot of that stuff. And we should say the documentary more or less ends with the 99 Champions League final win over Bayern completing that trouble. They sort of yada, yada, yada everything that came after that, Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney, and winning another Champions League title. So if you're looking for, if you're a Manchester United fan that's looking for a real extensive documentary on his Manchester United career, you might be left a little bit wanting here because it's it's more about everything that led up to Manchester United and then the first part of his Manchester United career, the first iteration that team he built with Cantona and the Class 92. And it's way more focused on that than anything that came after it. I should tell you that while we're recording this, I just got a uh, a text from uh, the great Sarah Walsh, who we have uh, both worked with. And because of our recommendation on uh, Mayor of Easttown, she is knee deep in it and cursing us uh, as we speak because she can't stop watching this uh, this now. So I think mission accomplished as far as I'm concerned. Um, all right, I'm going to blaze through a bunch of stuff that I watched because I said, like I said, I watched all sorts of stuff. Uh, mean Man uh, is a, uh, a bio uh, and documentary on Chris Holmes, a guitarist for Wasp. And you may uh, know him for his legendary scene and appearance in The Decline of Western Civilization, part two, the metal years, I think, where he was bubbling up a, a huge bottle of uh, vodka in a pool while his mother watched on and just 
show the excess. You can find that on Amazon. I thought it was interesting. He's moved on to France and lives in, in France, but still uh, is a guitarist and a musician. Silicon Cowboys, which is the wars between uh, Compact and IBM. You can find that on Amazon. And if you liked you know, Halt and Catch Fire and uh, Silicon Valley, the series and stuff like that, this is a great documentary on the actual people that took on IBM and the Goliath, David and Goliath type of story. That was, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but All Things Must, must Pass, the Tower Records, the story of Tower Records. I think we've talked about that before. Um, it's just a really, really good documentary about the rise and fall. We talked about the rise and fall of Blockbuster and these documentaries of these once iconic type of brands and and watching their pathway to success and then seeing the world change and uh, the failure coming after that. Um, uh, going back in time, Streets of Fire, 1984, uh, I think, with Diane Lane and uh, Michael Paré. Uh, does not hold up, but there's some interesting music in it. I, I didn't, I didn't see this because I was turned off by the title of the uh, the movie. Zach and Miri make a porno, uh, not because it was a porno. It was just long, and I didn't think it was going to be that interesting. It is hilarious. It came out, I think, in 2008 with Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks. So much better than I thought it was going to be. You mentioned the Sir Alex Ferguson thing, and then way back in 1971, uh, Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland uh, came out with. Uh, a movie called Clute, and I had never seen it. It's actually a pretty famous movie in Academy Awards and that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's very seventies. I will I will say that, but I, I think it's worth worth it for her performance and the slower pace that kind of defined a lot of movies back then that just would either not fly or just isn't done nowadays. Anyway, so those are my uh, my recommendations out there. All right, enough of that, Mossy. Uh, you got anything to add before we go on? No, that's it. All right, let's light this candle and let's light it right, right at the top here uh, with USA Mexico. We are recording this as we all, all, always do on a on a Monday morning. What a night! What a night! In the annals of uh, history, when it comes to USA Mexico, and there's so much when it comes to USA Mexico, both on and off the field. This is yet another chapter, but a chapter that I think uh, will live long in uh, in our memories for. Just the whole thing. In general, first off, congratulations. Congratulations to Greg Berhalter and to this team for winning a trophy. Now, I know it's a brand new trophy. And I was in, like I said, I was in a bar for the first time in a long time actually watching the game. And there were some folks that started watching it just because we were hooting and hollering, screaming and yelling. And I had to explain to them what this was. And it's not easy for people that aren't, you know, in it. But ultimately, when it came right down to it, they knew that United States versus Mexico in soccer, that was a big thing, regardless of what the Nations League was or anything like that. So they, they got hooked into it. And it's still an opportunity. And don't think for a second that this wasn't everything coming together for CONCACAF. This is exactly why this tournament was made. If this tournament had featured in the final, the United States versus Costa Rica or, or Mexico versus Honduras, it would it would not have been the same. This is this is why these tournaments are constructed, and in the back of everybody's mind, you are hoping that this happens. And so we're we're going to broadcast the Gold Cup here in 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 a few weeks. From a business perspective and from a competitive perspective, we want to see U.S. Mexico in the final in Las Vegas. Doesn't always happen like that, but the stars aligned. Soccer gods smiled on uh, on Concacaf for this uh, Nations League, and it was uh, everything. That uh, that it often promises to be, but doesn't always live up to it. So, in general, Mossy, what were your thoughts after the after that game? It's funny because going into these two games, I know 
were all sick of friendlies and there was a trophy on the line. So it was billed as, okay, now it, things count. But I was still in this headspace that these are glorified friendlies. It's preparing for the thing that really matters, which is World Cup qualifying, and that the performance was more important than the result. And yet the way these two games unfolded and the atmosphere in the stadium, uh, by the second half of the Mexico game, it really dawned on me, no, this is very meaningful. And this became more about finding a way to win this game to the point where I moved all the way to, at the end of last night's game, any attempt to really overanalyze the performance, I sort of rolled my eyes and felt like, well, you're missing the point. It wasn't about that. So it was an interesting journey I went to from feeling like these were glorified friendlies to know this was like a massively significant result for the U.S. It did feel like you don't want to overblow these things. But it did feel like the first moment for this generation of players that could provide a lot more great moments over the next 10 years and could be the generation of players that takes the U.S. to the next level. And it did feel very significant for a program that's had this dark cloud hanging over them since 2017 to finally erase that and fully win back the fans. So uh, you put that all together and it felt like a very significant result, actually. You mentioned something I think is important. Uh, the result, obviously, is the most important thing when we are analyzing this, right? But how that result came to be, and I, I said this last night on, on Twitter, I said that for all the talk of, of being a more progressive and evolved um, and mature type of approach that Greg Berhalter, um, or, or, or you know, I guess the arrival of Greg Berhalter has promised, when it really came down to in this game was almost a, and, and this is not a pejorative, a, a, a regressive um, or old school type of U.S. performance that ultimately won out in the end. And for an old guy like myself, that warms the cockles of my redheaded heart. I mean, that just to see that I and I but I but I, I'm interested to get your opinion, because is that a problem? Is it too rudimentary? Is it too regressive in that? OK, you get away with it in this game against Mexico, but we have higher aspirations or is, is it fair to think about it in this in this way? No, I think it's such a great point that you made. And I saw that tweet last night and I knew you were going to bring it up today. Um, it, it is interesting how things have been recontextualized with the U.S. Um, in past generations, uh, you felt like the grit and the toughness was a given. And there was this question of whether there was enough talent. Uh, and with this group, you feel like the talent is a given. And the question was whether there was enough grit and toughness. And they showed that um, last night. And so that combination augurs well, because the talent is there. I, I don't think they played great in either one of these games, but there were enough flashes where you could see the things that Pulisic and Reina and Des do with the ball there, where the talent is there. And this is a special generation of players coming up. But now the fact that they show that grit and toughness as well, and that if they have to, they can win a game that way. I thought it was very significant and I would view it. I would frame it as a positive, the, the way they won that game last night. Me too. Me too. All right, listen, uh, programming note, I'm, I'm going to talk more about the crowd situation later on in, in the pod because I think it deserves its own little uh, segment uh, because it is it's an important part of the story so just know that when we don't necessarily talk a whole lot about about that so let's get to get to on the field uh, the starting 11s come come out and you know no Musa so I think people were surprised a little bit about that uh, a Tim Ream appearance and I guess most importantly from a, a tactical perspective is a three slash five in the back, which gives more cover to Dest, which we've talked about. Um, and they have played this in the, in the past, but you had Mackenzie, 
Brooks and Tim Ream. And uh, <laughs> obviously it did not start well for the U.S. a minute into the game and Mexico scores on just a horrible decision uh, from uh, McKenzie in the back. They get snipped. Mexico uh, goes in and, and scores. Now, in that moment, I, I kept thinking about, you know, how people that don't like Greg Berhalter or want Greg Berhalter to fail are thinking, oh my goodness. Now, this is the best laid plans. No, no coach goes out there and coaches for the center back in the first minute to make a bonehead type of pass like that and score one nothing. But it's always going to be reflective. Now, when that goal goes in, Mossy, what are you thinking? This is going to be a long night because I know I was. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we maybe need to have a conversation about this whole playing out of the back thing with the U.S. because this is two games in a row against Mexico where they've essentially gifted Mexico a goal by doing that. And you just wonder, you do the risk-reward calculation, the trade-off. You know, if there was the occasional turnover, but 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 by playing out of the back, it was helping the U.S. Uh, maintain possession and play with more fluidity and have all these nice team moves that start all the way from the back, uh, then, okay, maybe the trade-off is worth it. But I didn't really see that last night. It, it, it felt like most of the chances the U.S. created were clearances or 50-50 balls in one of the midfield that ended up at the feet of Pulisic and Rain, and they were able to turn and run with it. Uh, I didn't see a lot of moves that started all the way at the back. And so it doesn't seem like you're you're gaining all that much from it, and you're giving up goals to, in games where you really can't afford to be giving away goals like that. So I'm as progressive as they come, but I think we do need to have a bit of a conversation about the playing out of the back thing. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you you get away with it ultimately in this game, but you you put yourself in such a, a bad position and needlessly uh, uh, to your point. All right. Uh, in terms of the starting lineup, uh, uh, Mossy, uh, and, and ultimately, uh, again, Josh Sargent, and there's actually rumors that Josh Sargent is being looked at by some other teams in the Bundesliga and associated with other teams in the, in the Bundesliga. Uh, I want him to be associated with goals, okay? So I don't care where he goals, but let's have him be associated with uh, with with goals because I didn't I didn't think he did anything to uh, to again establish himself as that person up top. He was, uh, you know, for for great uh, periods in that game, uh, non-existent. Is it the fault of his own or others? I mean, we can debate that, but ultimately, you're up there to generate chances and to score chances. That's uh, that's your job. Um, Giorena obviously scored uh, scored the goal. That was a good thing, but I also think that he was more effective, and I think he's still growing into himself and to the, uh, to the game. Christian Pulisic, I mean, let's be honest. He was non-existent and a non-factor uh, for most of the game. But in that, until he wasn't, until that moment uh, that he ultimately created and then finished in terms uh, of the penalty. But in general, overall in that game, I think Mexico did a really good job of snuffing him out when he got when he got going. And when he gets going, it's difficult because even though you want to, it doesn't always happen. But he dribbled into multiple times, dribbled into Mexican players and they they saw uh, they saw it coming. You know, Weston McKinney, if anybody needed any further uh, proof that he is not the only one, but a lot of that beating heartbeat of this team. All right. He's not perfect. He's not the most skilled player out there, but the things that he does um, and ultimately in big moments were, were, uh, were on display. John Brooks is still, if, if he goes down, I think this U S team has a big problem in the, in the back. Zach Steffen, speaking of going down, did go out and, you know, the, the Ethan Horvath, I mean, we were screaming Horvath in the bar. Everyone screaming. <laughs> It was it was an amazing scene. All right, before we get into a little bit more of the details, though, just in terms of personnel, and I didn't hit on everybody, uh, everybody out there, but 
it wasn't a if you were to grade all of these players, it's not like a lot of players are getting the A's and the and and uh, and B's out there. No, and going all the way back to the first guy you mentioned, Sergeant, his greatest contribution to two games was that goal line clearance against Honduras in yep. the first half, which was amazing. He did have a nice moment early on last night, right after Mexico scored that opening goal, where he the first time he got the ball, he spun away from a defender and had a nice run into the box and took a shot that Ochoa parried. But yeah, overall disappointing from him. I would say Reyna was magnificent last night. I would give him very high marks. But no, overall, I agree with most of what you said. If you were if this was a boxing fight, which at times <laughs> it, it yep. seemed like and you were scoring it on points. I think you'd give it to Mexico last night. They they were the more dangerous team from the run of play. Really, the difference in that game was their abject inability to defend set pieces, which made it all the more inexcusable how cheaply they were giving away set pieces. The, the goat of that game from a Mexico perspective is Luis Rodriguez. You know, you just scored Linus to go up 2-1. It's the 80th minute. The U.S. hasn't created a whole lot from the run of play. So you think as long as we don't give away any cheap set pieces here the rest of this game. We should be in good shape. And what does he do? Uh, he has control of the ball in the box. Nobody around him. He could have rolled it back to a show. He could have turned around and cleared it up the field, even cleared it out for a throw-in. The one thing he couldn't do there, which he did, was he trips over the ball. It squirts out for a corner. And I immediately thought, oh, the soccer gods are going to punish this. Uh, you know, Wesson McKinney's got on the end of every single yeah, corner uh-huh. tonight. There's no reason to think he's not going to get on the end of this one. And this one is finally going to go in, and it did. And so that's where Tata has to be kicking himself. But yeah, so it, it wasn't a great U.S. performance. You know, uh, I mean, I, you know, look, set pieces are part of the game, credit to him. But still, when, when you're, when you, both your goals come on set pieces, it does speak a little bit to some of the issues you had creating chances from the run of play. So well, there well, are some, on. It's, they, they all count the same. All right. Oh, absolutely. No. And, and, and listen, it's not a fluke with McKinney. He is unbelievable. I see it with Juventus. You're saying with Schalke, he is unbelievable at getting on the end of these set pieces. It's, it's an eight. It's, it's, uh, and it's wonderful to see because even, even when you know what is happening, he still finds a way. And he, I mean, he could have scored a couple of others there and was getting on the end of them. And everybody in the stadium knew, everybody on the field knew that this was, uh, this was going to happen. And it happened. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about set pieces. And I know it's, it's, it's uh, um, you know, people uh, oftentimes uh, make fun of it. But they are a huge part of the game. And the U.S. recognized that they had an advantage in that, first off, they were able to create them. And second off, they were able to capitalize them uh, off of them uh, more often than not, especially with uh, someone like uh, uh, McKenney out there. Um, all right. When it comes to the, uh, the penalties, Mossy, because I think actually VAR had a good uh, game, I guess, if you will, if you if VAR awkwardly placed between the two benches. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> I know. What, what, are we, what are we doing here? Why? Why? Jeez. All right. Don't get me started. Uh, so when it comes to the you know, the the, uh, the two penalties, uh, well, just VAR in general, because um, it could have been two nothing very easily. Dosa zero could have happened for Mexico. And that that was that would have been the end of the game, I, I think. But. VAR took it back. It stayed one nothing, and uh, you know that, uh, that. Then we went. Uh, then we went on. Did you think that either the U.S. penalty or the Mexico penalty were deserving? Uh, I thought the Mexico one was more of a penalty than the U.S. one. Um, so I thought the U.S. caught a little bit of a break there in that trade off. But I will say, uh, Hector Herrera should have been sent off oh, yeah. from that game. So yeah. the, the, to me, that more than evens it out the other way. So um, I don't think Mexico has a, a, a gripe when you take all the calls into it. And, and no question about the disallowed goal, by the way. Moreno was clearly offside. So that was a correct decision there. Yeah, but the, the Herrera thing is so difficult because I rate him as possibly the best and most important player on that Mexican team uh, with his ability. And I don't understand what he was doing. and. 
he was right on that line. And I know the you know, referee didn't want to throw anybody out and change it, but you would have been well within your rights multiple times to say, uh, uh-uh, this is not happening. Uh, you're gone. And he didn't. That's, uh, and that's, uh, that's disappointing. All right. So when, um, you know, the Christian Pulisic, when Christian Pulisic is taken down for the penalty, looking at it at the bar and then seeing the thing, I didn't think it was a penalty. OK, I thought that the Mexican defender got in and actually placed himself in between Christian Pulisic and the ball. The question was, and probably ultimately where this came down to from a VR perspective is the, the, the other Mexican defender that was there that possibly inhibited or pushed uh, Christian Pulisic that ultimately uh, led to him uh, him going down. Look, I'll take it from a U.S. perspective. And then, you know, on the other side, it actually, from a referee's perspective, it was godsend, right? I mean, because he gets to equal it up in two, in, in two calls that, while we can argue it, you can certainly justify. And so now it's about finishing. And, you know, Ethan Horvath comes in for Zach Steffen. I still don't know, at the, at the point of this uh, re- recording, we don't know exactly what's going on with uh, Zach Steffen, but it, it didn't look good in that he thought he could continue, and then you could see him wincing, and something was going on with his knee. He's, he's had some injuries, but much more of the uh, arthritis, uh, uh, you know, uh, problems that he's had over the years, even back when he was in uh, in the Bundes- in, in the Bundesliga. So I, I don't know ultimately what's going to happen, but it's nice to know that you can bring uh, Ethan Horvath in. And you know, I was watching it, like I said, with with some people around me, and and some that had never even heard of him or watched him, and he does not. How should I put this delicately? He does not present in a way that instills confidence. I mean, optics and appearances and and, and all that kind of stuff, they matter. And he's, you know, he just looks like Ethan Horvath, Horvath, right? And yet he comes in and it doesn't matter ultimately what you look like if you're a goalkeeper, you just got to save the ball. And he did. And obviously let a goal in, but it came through players' legs and came back against the grain. And there's plenty of other uh, culpability on uh, on that goal. But well done. And thank you, Ethan Horvath, for coming in and ultimately playing the hero in a game that was full of heroes and villains and all sorts of uh, stuff that, uh, uh, that goes on. Do you think, Mossy, that this result changes... The, the narrative or the, uh, the perspective or the perception of uh, Greg Berhalter, especially for those people that have, are, have kind of had the daggers out for him. Because this is, to your point, this is, this is a big result. We all know that qualifying for the World Cup and doing well at the World Cup is the most important thing. But this in, in the line of chipping away and trying to get some more credibility and respect from a Greg Berhalter and for this team, this is important. Do you think it changes anybody's mind? I do. Yeah. I think it was a big result for him. Uh, He needed a signature win, which he now has. So that gives him a little bit of breathing room moving forward and he can focus on preparing the team for qualifying. I don't think it changes. I don't think it changes anybody's mind. I think if you, if you have it out for, for Greg Berhalter, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, some completely fair, maybe some unfair, but this is sports. This is the way we go. It. Uh, you'll look at uh, the fact that the lineup was changed, that uh, you put that you played uh, that you played Tim Ream or they didn't play Moose or whatever it ends up being. By the way, um, you know, I mentioned that Christian Pulisic was non-existent. So was Serginho Dest. So all of this movement in order to accommodate this player actually <laughs> didn't change anything. I mean, there were times no, where that's... I didn't even know if he was on the field. 
that's going to be moving forward. If he sticks with this formation, then Sergio Dest, it, we're going to always judge it on, did he do enough to justify uh, this change? And so, yeah, and last night you could argue, no, he didn't. And yeah, it was an interesting night for the U.S. defense because Mexico, they have some live wires, man. That Corona yep. and then Chucky Lozano and, and Antuna and Linez was on fire after he came on. It was interesting because... Uh, by the time Linez came on for Antuna, Corona had come out for Henry Martin. So we never got to see the trio that would have been fun would have been Corona, Lozano, and Linez. Uh, and by the way, one note on that, Mexico, they do have an issue at the center forward position. Now they played Chucky there at the start and then brought in Henry Martin. Um, obviously, it's horrible what happened with Raul Jimenez, and we hope he gets back on the field. But if he doesn't, and if Tata doesn't buy into Chicharito being all the way back to his best, then you're left with trying to talk yourself into one of these League MX strikers who I cover League MX. To me, none of them, none of these Henry Martin types are of real international pedigree and somebody that's going to put fear into a, a real quality back line. So there's a potential issue there for Mexico moving forward at the center forward position. We'll see how it plays out. But yeah, you have these, let's be honest, kind of slow-footed U.S. defenders trying to keep up with these little quick, jittery, live-wire Mexican forwards. So it made for an awkward night at times. But I mean, they, they, they uh, the McKenzie issue aside, the beginning. I mean, for the rest of the night, they they held up relatively well, I would say. Yeah, I mean, when that ball went out wide uh, to the right-hand side for Mexico and Lenez got that ball, I mean, not just the goal. Every single time, I was, please, anybody else, anybody else, because <laughs> his ability, you know, that that whole, uh, you know, off-wing type of thing to come into your your stronger foot, yeah, it was it was very difficult. I mean, I'm not, I'm not crying for Mexico. <laughs> they don't have anybody necessarily up top. They'll they'll they will figure it out. Uh, but you you know you did see obviously the frustration uh, and the passion and the emotion both on the field, especially when things started to go south for Mexico, or Tata Martino you know, off the field, uh, who ultimately got ejected. And you know this once again just put this up in the continuingly uh, the continuing uh, chapter and book that is USA Mexico and I think there's a lot of people I know a lot of people complain that it was on too late and if you're on the east coast yeah you were up very very late la- uh, late last night and you know CBS you know ultimately this is when they decided to to put it on um, but they got themselves something pretty special. I think as the game wore on and the stuff started to happen, I think a lot of more people came in and said, all right, something's, something's going on uh, and watched it. But so, so, and, and, and so to, to button it up here, we do give credence to this. This is, this is important in terms of this, this evolution and this progression of this national team under, uh, under Greg Berhalter. And I would, I would agree with you. I think it is important. I think it is a touchstone because we're talking still about even with all the talent and all the value and all the, you know, the, 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 uh, the resumes and stuff like that, it's still a very young and inexperienced team. And I think, you know, one of the things that we also saw is that this was CONCACAF in a nutshell, even though it wasn't, you know, down in Honduras or uh, down in Mexico City or anyplace else. This was a CONCACAF type of game from the environment to the style of play to the refereeing. And for a lot of these players, this is the first time that they are going through this. And so this was huge because it's only going to get worse in qualifying and an understanding, whether you're a Sergio Dest uh, or a McKenney or a Sergeant or a Reina or anybody else as to what this is all about. And that it doesn't matter where you play or what you have done or what pedestal you have been put upon. 
CONCACAF will bring you to your knees, regardless of your name or how much money you're making or what league you are playing around the world. And the sooner you are able to adjust to that, to recognize you're not in Kansas anymore, although who knows, they might play in Kansas, uh, the better off you are going to be. And that, that progression and that growth is happening in real time. And there's not a lot of opportunities. So I think this couldn't have gone better for Greg Berhalter, not just in the result, but the way that this all, all came about. And we should mention that they do have another game because this was a four-game type of scenario that was, that was set up to happen. So now they go and they play Costa Rica in a friendly. Right, Mossy? Is that, that, that's right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. A bit anticlimactic, but still, we'll see if they can build off the momentum now that they, they've generated with this win. Uh, I know you're going to be talking about the crowd later on in a more serious uh, vein, but a, a couple of fun crowd notes. Uh, Stephen Mandis, a recent guest of this uh, uh, podcast, uh, the author, attended this game and showed me, sent me pictures this morning. And uh, yeah, he had he had great seats, so he got an up close view of all the all the craziness there. So uh, there were some really cool cool pictures, uh, you yeah. know, and it was fun to see everybody screaming and yelling, and uh, you know, to see Giorena's uh, parents up in the stands. Yeah, you know that, that was uh, that was really really cool and special. I was thinking about this. What's unique about this rivalry now? If you're American, maybe you don't love this because you'd like to have more of a home field advantage. But but what is unique is for the games that happen in the United States, this mixture of like a lot of fans from each team at the game, which you don't get, you know, when Brazil plays Argentina in Brazil, it's all Brazilians and Argentina, it's all Argentines. If it's England, Germany and England, it's all English people. If it's England, Germany and Germany, it's all Germans. But there's this unique aspect of this rivalry where the games that are in the United States, you have uh, sizable amounts of both sets of fans. And so it makes this great just juxtaposition where, you know, when the U.S. is attacking, that the U.S. fans perk up and you feel this real energy in the stadium. But then when Mexico comes back the other way, Mexico fans perk up and you feel this energy. So there's never a let off. It's this back and forth nature to it, uh, which is it makes it really exciting. It feels like almost like a like a big college football game in a way. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, the atmosphere last night really elevated the whole thing. I thought it was incredible. It was great. It was great. And, you know, they they these players and, and it's not as if they haven't played soccer before or haven't, they don't, they're not aware of it, but now they've been, they've been baptized in USA, Mexico and their, their lives will never be the same. <laughs> and, <laughs> and as we go forward, we're hoping for another one. We're hoping for another, uh, uh, ceremony, if you will. Uh, and, uh, you know, we might get it with, uh, with, uh, with the gold cup. I'll be, you know, I'll be with probably very, very different collection of players, but still it, it, it means something. And you saw in the celebration and, you know, holding up the, 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 the trophy and the confetti and the screaming and yelling and the excitement. And I think it was made that much more meaningful to them because of the environment in which, in, in which they did it. And that's great. It, uh, it, it was wonderful. I, it, I, was, I was with somebody actually at the time who was with us on the night that in 2017, the Kuva night when the U.S. failed to qualify for the World Cup. And we were juxtaposing <laughs> the experience and ultimately the ah moment at the end of this game. And just the, you know, that, that joy and that sense of celebration and accomplishment uh, for in that moment that we, as U.S. soccer fans, we want to have. And we were denied a few years ago in the cruelest and worst possible way. And this doesn't make up for it. That's not what I'm saying. But it was nice to be back there 
screaming and yelling, having a good time and celebrating a uh, U.S. win against our, our our biggest rival. But there will be another one. You know, they keep coming. Anything else, Mossy, on the, on this game? That's it. All right. We're going to uh, take a real quick break. Um, and when we come back, there's so much stuff going on around the rest of the world and it's constantly changing. So we're trying to make this as evergreen as possible and, and to be as topical as possible. But we recognize that we're recording this once again on this Monday morning and things could change. We're going to talk about uh, the uh, the Euros, which are coming up, uh, Copa America, which is uh, coming up, some coaching, all sorts of stuff that's going on around the rest of the world. All right. Don't go away. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, we are back. All right, Mossy. Uh, all right, so the Euros are, are, are starting up here. Uh, you know, one of the big international tournaments uh, out there and obviously chock full of incredible talent. And But, we, you know, this is 2021. And so these are the 20, and I hope I get this right, these are the 2020 Euros, and they will be called the 2020 Euros, but obviously they are being played in the summer of 2021. Uh, one, not the first tournament to have been postponed, but since they are representative of what was going to happen in 2020, they are going to continue to call uh, call it that. Should uh, should we go through who's in the tournament, Mosti, and then kind of go from there? Absolutely, I'm ready. All right. Uh, who? Uh, other than <laughs> it's easy to pick France, right? <laughs> so first off, we should say unique way the way this tournament is structured. It's it's. There are games across 11 different countries in Europe. It's something they're trying. It was meant to be for 2020 to commemorate the 60 year anniversary of the first Euros. And so the tournament is spread out all across Europe. Um, the first match uh, Friday is in Rome, Turkey, Italy. Uh, and then it culminates the semifinals and final are at Wembley. Um, and it's 24 teams, which I don't love, by the way, because it creates that that four best third place finishers advanced thing, which I don't, I don't like. Uh, and you know, there's a group, the group of death with France, Portugal, and Germany, which would have been very dramatic, but the fact that all three teams could advance undercuts a little bit of that drama. So, uh, there is that issue to it, but, but no, uh, very excited should be, should be terrific tournament. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go through it. All right. So here's a, here's the, uh, the venues, London, Munich, Rome, Baku, Azerbaijan, I think St. Petersburg, Bucharest, Amsterdam, Sevilla, Budapest, Glasgow, and Copenhagen. Does that sound about right? Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe that's That sounds about right. Um, Qualification, right? Uh, Six groups, right, Mossy? Right. So six groups of four, the top two in each group, and the four best third place finishers advance, which will set up the knockout stage with 16. All right. Group A, Turkey, Italy, Wales, and Switzerland. Uh, I am very high on Italy. Uh, ever since Roberto Mancini took over, he's got him playing some lovely football. It's not the most star-studded team, but uh, they've got good players and they've got a real nice thing going there. Uh, that midfield with Barella and Jorginho and Verratti, if he's fit. You've got Bonucci and Chiellini at the back, Donnarumma in goal. 
Um, and we'll see if up front if Immobile can knock in the goals. But uh, I'm very high on this Italy team. To me, they're actually one of the favorites to win the whole thing, which, of course, means I think they're going to top this group. Yeah. Uh, Turkey are interesting. You've got Burak Yumaz coming off this incredible season with Lil, helping them win the league on title. Chalanolu in the midfield there. Uh, Wales, we know, will be Gareth Bale. They had a very good Euros back in 2016. And then Switzerland just faced the U.S. in this friendly, so we know what they're about. So a uh, pretty solid group top to bottom, but Italy, the class of the field. Let's do um, just, I know there's some third place teams that can come out. Let's just do the, the top two that you're guaranteeing. So I got Italy and Switzerland. Would you agree uh, or no? Sure. Yeah, okay, I'll roll with that. Well, yeah, you, mean, you don't have to. Uh, yeah, okay. No, no, but that makes if sense. If you're a big Turkey fan or something like that. <laughs> Italy and Switzerland. Yep. Okay. Group uh, Group B, Denmark, Finland, Belgium, and Russia. So uh, Belgium, the class of the field here. We'll see about De Bruyne. He picked up that injury in the Champions League final. And we'll see about Hazard. Nobody knows what to expect from him in this tournament, given how poorly he's played for Real Madrid the past two seasons. Was it the environment at Real Madrid? Is he going to flip the switch now and be back to being the Eden Hazard we're grown accustomed to? And obviously Lukaku... Uh, coming off his incredible season in Syria. Uh, so loads of talent here. Um, and certainly the, the class of this group, I expect them to win it. Okay. Uh, all right. So I got Belgium and Denmark going through. Do you have Finland or Russia? Uh, honestly, I haven't <laughs> really put too much thought in who would finish second in this group. Well, when so. has that ever stopped us before, Mossy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, yeah, I'll go Belgium, Denmark. I feel like I'm, I'm just you know, pushing <laughs> you into all so these far. things. All right, Group I mean, C, Netherlands, Ukraine. Support. I mean, are we, are all we... right, Group C, Netherlands, Ukraine, Austria, North Macedonia. Uh, I suppose the Netherlands would be the favorite here. Although any any team coached by Frank de Boer, I'm not going to put that much faith in. And no oh, fan wow. Mike, he wow. wasn't fit enough to play in this tournament. But still, you got Memphis Depay up there, Jorginho Wijnaldum, Frankie de Jong. Jadrino Ronaldo, by the way, is about to sign with PSG, spurning Barcelona. Uh, Frankie de Jong, Matias de Litt at the back. So they've got some, some good players and, and probably should be the favorites in this group. All right. I am going to pick for this one. I'm going to pick the Netherlands and the Ukraine. So I'm sorry, North Macedonia. Ukraine is weak. Uh, so you got Austria instead? That's, that's a little cheeky Seinfeld reference. for. I get it. I get it. All right. I get it. All right, Group uh, again, D. I, again, I didn't know we were going to do these sorts of predictions, so I haven't put that. Oh, we got to talk about it. I mean, it's I'll happening. Go. Do you do you not right, want to okay. do a prediction? We certainly don't have to do predictions, but as long as we're here, we might as well. Okay, I'll go Austria instead of Ukraine, just so we have some. Oh difference. my God! Group D: England, Croatia, Scotland, and the Czech Republic. Uh, this is a fun group. Uh, super high on England. I think they're one of the top top favorites to win the whole thing. I'm enamored of their young talent. The fact that you have in one squad Foden, Mount, Sancho, Rashford, Bellingham, and then obviously Harry Kane leading the line. Um, so yeah, they're the class of this group. You do have. Uh, their old rival Scotland in there. So that game will be fun. And of course, you have the, the 2018 World Cup runners-up Croatia, Luka Modric still leading that midfield. So, and the Czech Republic are no pushover. So this is actually a very interesting group top to bottom. Uh, okay, so would you say that you would, if you had to pick one, would you go with Croatia or the Czech Republic? Uh, Croatia, a bit of a spent force. I don't think they're quite as good as they were in 2018, but I'll still pick them to finish second in this group. Yeah, I will too. I will too. Uh, da, 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 da. Group E, Spain, Sweden, Poland, and Slovakia. Uh, interesting one. Spain, uh, crazy situation involving them. Sergio Busquets uh, tested positive for COVID, and now they're worried that he might have infected 
other players in the squad. So they're going to have a, a they, they, they skipped their last pre-tournament warm-up. They were supposed to play a friendly against, I believe, Lithuania. And they, they weren't able to play that game because of this whole COVID situation. And so now they're going to have a test just days before the start of the tournament. And depending on how many players test positive, they might have to draft in a bunch of new players at the last minute. Supposedly, Luis Enrique has this alternate list he's been putting together. But so uh, COVID affecting this tournament as well. It's not just the Copa America. Um, and, and I will tell you that I wasn't that high on Spain to begin with. Um, you know, as we get farther and farther away from that golden period, uh, the names get less and less impressive to me. They're obviously good players. Anybody that follows European football will know all these guys, but it's not, you know, you've got Morata leading the line, uh, Ferran Torres, um, you know, Pedri's a, a good player. I, I like him. He said the Spanish Gio Reyna and in the midfield, you still have Thiago and Coque and I thought Busquets. We'll see now what becomes of that. Uh, at the back, Pal Torres and Laporte. And, and Llorente, I guess, might play as a, as a fullback. Uh, Jordi Alba. So listen, names of note, but it's not anything overly impressive. I don't love Luis Enrique as a manager. And now you throw this drama on top of it. So I'm actually not all that high on Spain. You know, in this group, you've got Poland with Lewandowski. You've got Sweden, who knows Latan, unfortunately. He was going to play, but then injury knocked him out. Uh, but still, good team, reached the quarterfinals of the last World Cup. So I don't think it's a given that Spain tops this group. All right. But uh, who's who, But you're saying they're still going through, right? So I got Spain and Sweden. And Sweden uh, and Poland, I mean, I think it's a toss-up. Uh, Sweden uh, and Poland. Uh, I'll go with Sweden and Poland as a top two. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll say that all this craziness really knocks Spain uh, off the rails. Although, as I said, they might still, they could finish third and still advance. So that, that's not necessarily the death knell for them, but uh, I'll go with Sweden and Poland. All right. Group F, uh, normal circumstances, this would be the group of death, but since uh, it is for Hungary. <laughs> well, exactly. No, Hungary is winning this group for sure. Hungary, Portugal, <laughs> France, and Germany. Oh boy. I mean, so they're all going to come through, right? They'll, they'll find a way to be one of the best third place teams right or not I mean, you, I don't know. you joke about hungary there's some echoes to the 2014 world cup when costa rica was in a group with yeah. uruguay italy and england everybody thought they were roadkill in that group and they ended up winning it so you never things know it's gonna happen but, things can happen but no I, mean, right, I got france and germany coming through as the top two um yeah, I mean, just to go through each of these teams individually, France, uh, I mean, you mentioned at the very top, uh, they are the favorites. Uh, they've, you know, essentially taken the, the team that won the World Cup and added Kareem Benzema to it, which that situation is so interesting to me because, you know, it was his exclusion was never for footballing reasons. So it was always a non sequitur to me whenever he had a great game or scored a great goal when people pointed out and said, oh, how could he not be on the France team? It had to do with the Valbuena thing. So I'm not sure what changed there. Apparently him and the Champs had some sort of sit down. I don't know why this couldn't have happened years ago, but they finally talked it out and the Champs got to a place in his mind where he felt okay ending Benzema's exile. So now you add him to a front line that already includes uh, Mbappe and Griezmann, and, and you could even try to work in Kingsley Coman into that. And you've got Pogba and Conte leading that midfield. Uh, so it is just scary. I mean, I, I suppose the one chink in the armor might be that some of those center backs aren't coming off great seasons for their clubs. Rafael Varane wasn't that good for Real Madrid. Long Lay had a rough season for Barcelona. Kim Pembe wasn't that good for PSG. Uh, but I mean, I, I am searching for the one dark cloud in a clear sky. They, this team is absolutely loaded. They are the favorites to win this thing. Um, Portugal, I don't, they haven't played that well, but I keep saying I'm enamored of their talent. I mean, the fact that I Ronaldo know we heard we now love surrounded Portugal. by uh, João Felix, Bruno Fernandes, Bernardo Silva, Diogo Jota. You've got Renato Sanchez and Ruben Neves in that midfield, Ruben Diaz, João Cancelo, Rafael Guerrero all at the back. Uh, it is just an embarrassment of riches, but we'll see if they can actually put it together. And then Germany are so interesting to me because 
awful at the last World Cup, and results since then have not been good. You've got Yogi Love in this lame duck situation with Hansi Flick already lined up to replace him. So you kind of think, oh, Germany, this might not be the tournament for them. But man, you look at the squad and the names still ring out, especially now that he's brought Muller and Hummels back into the fold. And my God, I mean, it's up and down. You've got Rudiger and Sula and, and Hummels at the back and, and Kimmich and Goretzka and Gundogan and Tony Kroos in that midfield and Thomas Muller and Havertz and Sané and, and Gnabry and Werner coming off, I know, this strange season with Chelsea. But still, th- th- there's amazing talent there and they're Germany. So, I, you know, they might be like, a. It's, I mean, it's funny to talk about Germany as a sleeper, but they might be kind of more dangerous than people realize. So, yeah, th- this group is fascinating for sure. All right, when I go over to Foxbet here and I look at the uh, odds for the outright winner, they got France at one, uh, England at two, Belgium, Spain, Germany, Portugal. That's your, that's your top six, basically. I, um, I, I, would, I would... Wait, did you not mention Italy anywhere in there? There would be seven. But boy, that, that's great odds. But, but to, be, to be honest, they have the same odds as Portugal, so oh, I guess they okay. would be co-six, uh, if you will. Yeah, I, I would move... I would I would move Spain down that list and move Italy and Portugal up. Portugal are the defending champions after all. It's easy to forget that. Well, you can um, make some money then, Mossy. You can go over to Foxbet and make some money. I, to your point, and you kind of took the words right out of my mouth, I would put money on Germany. Um, I, I, do, I think, yes, there is a lame duck aspect to it, but or there is going out in a blaze of uh, Yogi Love glory. And <laughs> the talent isn't the talent isn't uh, isn't in question here, but I think that there is some motivation to have this moment be. And like I said, there's plenty of talent uh, uh, talent to do that. Top goal scorers, if just a, if you're uh, interested in uh, in what the odds and all that kind of stuff are, Harry Kane is at uh, number one, Lukaku, then Mbappe, then Cristiano, and it goes on from there. Benzema, who you uh, you mentioned. So there's plenty of opportunities, opportunities there. Um, all right. Anything else, uh, Mossy, on uh, Euros? We look forward to watching the, uh, the games and the production from our friends over there. I think it's, uh, no, it's, it's ESPN. And to your point, with all of these different uh, locations, it will be interesting to see you know, how, it all, how it all plays out. Uh, anything else, uh, Euros? Uh, no, that's okay. it. Okay, let's, uh, let's quickly go into... Copa America, the ever-changing world of Copa America. I know that you are actually coming to us off of yet another uh, call uh, because, you know, you and all the leadership over there in Fox, you, you go and talk amongst yourselves about the ridiculousness that is uh, those of us in front of the camera. I, I, I get that. But you also do a tremendous amount of work. And look, we are, we are flying by the seat of our pants. It is, <laughs> it is so interesting how... Our, our, how much our world has changed and how much th- that world has changed us in terms of how we go about. I mean, you talk about some of these tournaments that have, sometimes they are awarded these things and there are, you know, uh, bid committees and incredible amounts of infrastructure and years and years of preparation to put on these, uh, these tournaments. And, you know, we're a, we're a week out from the beginning of uh, the tournament uh, of Copa America as we record this. And, things are still kind of being settled when it comes to what is going to happen. We are going to have this tournament, it turns out. Uh, it is going to happen in, uh, in Brazil. Well, he's got to be happy about that to, to a certain extent. It is going to feature all 10 teams from Comnibol, uh, and in two groups, uh, a North and a South group. And it will, uh, you, you will play your four opponents in your group of five. So four games, and then you'll go on to uh, 
knockout rounds type of uh, type of thing. How do you want to do this, Moss? You want to look at the two groups, or you want to give a little more of a primer over there? I mean, some of these some of these places I have uh, I've certainly heard of in terms of where the games are being uh, being played, and even that was up in the air. And who knows when the tournament ultimately kicks off? Who knows where these things are ultimately going to be played? First up, the North and South group thing is when the tournament was going to be in Colombia, which is the northern part of South America, and then Argentina in the southern part. I'm not sure that's a thing anymore. <laughs> it might still well, be listed as that group but, a and group b it's still i mean it's, right right right, right. It's still right okay yeah group a and group but they b were they were called south and and north at south. one point yeah in this whole right. process uh so the latest is it's going to be held in four different cities in brazil um rio de janeiro brasilia uh, cuiaba and Goiânia. and uh the original dates still stand june 13th until july 10th and the the, the final will be at the maracana uh, July 10th. The first game, June 13th, Brazil-Venezuela is in Brasilia, a stadium that I mentioned last week. I, I, I attended for the last group game in the 2014 World Cup. 4-1 win over Cameroon. Even Fred scored in that game. Um, Argentina begin the next day against Chile, rematch of the 2015 and 2016 Copa Finals. Um, so, yeah, listen, we're taping this on a Monday morning. It's fluid. So by the time you hear this, something that I just said might not be applicable anymore. But as of now, that's that's the plan. Um, and also, by the way, these these countries haven't named their squads yet for this tournament. They named squads for these World Cup qualifiers that are going on right now, but they have the right to tweak it for uh, Copa. So I might mention a player who I'm assuming is going to be on one of these squads, and it turns out he's not. So if that happens, uh, you know, uh, my apologies. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, it's two groups of five each, four teams advance, which, if we're being honest, is a little tedious, <laughs> uh, all that to weed out uh, two teams. And then the eight will move on to the knockout stage and we'll have quarterfinal, semifinal, and final. Uh, okay, so Group A, which was the South Zone, or what we can call it that or whatever, but Group A uh, includes Argentina, Bolivia, Uruguay, Chile, and Paraguay. Uh, group B, the North Zone, if you will, uh, includes Brazil, obviously the host nation, uh, Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Peru. If I go over to Fox Bet over here and I look at the uh, the odds for the outright winner, they got Brazil naturally. Uh, it would even in normal circumstances, uh, regardless of where they're playing, you would you would have them rated high, and then Argentina uh, a close second, and then it kind of drops down there. Uruguay third, Colombia fourth, uh, Chile, Peru, Ecuador, Paraguay, Venezuela, and last my good friends Bolivia that are plus ten thousand. If you if you care about that. So you can make a lot of money over there, but a lot of stuff would have to, uh, would have to happen. How do you, how do you anticipate, how do you think that this, this tournament is going to look? We know that it's not being done in, fa- uh, in front of fans. So we're going to, you know, we're going to have some enhanced audio and we're going to make it as appealing as we possibly can uh, to the viewer out there, but you're still seeing some great teams and hopefully fingers crossed some great uh, individual players and some world-class players out there. Yeah, I mean, look, even though it's on Fox, we can acknowledge the elephant in the room. There's a weird vibe heading into this tournament. And even the group stage might be a little tedious with all these games just to weed out two different teams. But I do think once the ball is rolling, you know how South American football is. It's so passionate and and, and people will get into it. And particularly when you get to the knockout stage and if you get these matchups, Brazil, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, you know, Argentina are close to winning it, which means Messi's on the doorstep of finally winning his first senior trophy with Argentina. Then people are really going to get into it. And, and yeah, we should, we should go there first because that is the, biggest storyline of this tournament. Can Messi finally break through? Uh, He's got a team here where a funny little thing has happened with Argentina in this cycle. After the last World Cup, 
they hired uh, Lionel Scaloni as an interim coach just to keep the seat warm while they actually went out and tried to hire a real coach. Uh, so he was really nothing more than a glorified Dave Sarakin, but, but they weren't able to find anybody uh, by the time the 2019 Copa America rolled around. So they said, OK, I guess we'll stick with Scaloni for that tournament. And mind you, they didn't even win the tournament. They didn't play that well, but he really connected with the players during that competition. The circumstances of their semifinal defeat to Brazil, they felt like they got cheated in that game. Messi came out afterwards and went on this huge rant and got himself suspended. But all that had this galvanizing effect on that squad where they came out of that tournament with everybody behind Scaloni. They gave him the job permanently. Messi seems more invested than he's ever been in the national team. They've played pretty well since then. They look more organized than they have in years. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, it's Argentina. There's still plenty of quality there. You've got Aguero who just signed with Barcelona. So if he gets on the field with Messi, that's interesting. But it's really Lautaro Martinez that's going to be leading the line with Messi behind him. You've got Di Maria Campos, guys like Paredes and Los Celso and Rodrigo De Paul in the midfield. Uh, there's some questions at the back. But uh, no, I mean, it would not surprise me at all if Argentina won this tournament. I think they've got a, a, a good team and a good chance. I mean, you, you mentioned the the bigger picture type of stories. Anytime that Messi is involved in a tournament, it's the opportunity for him to reach this, this pinnacle and kind of check that box. And, you know, we saw when we did the Centenario and obviously, you know, the world cups that they, they come and go, does he need it? I mean, no, he's still going to go down as arguably the greatest player ever to play the game, but in the inevitable compare and contrast that we do with diminutive, talented, left-footed Argentinians, uh, you know, with the late, great uh, Diego uh, Maradona. Go ahead, Masi. Who, by the way, never won this tournament. Neither Pelé or Maradona ever won a Copa America, so... But at this point, it's just win a tournament. So it doesn't even matter, right? I mean, with... <laughs> he could even uh, with be this. the Nations League, and he... Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they should do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, I don't know if you want to stay with that group or. Yeah, hang on. I'm gonna I'm Bob Bob Lawless here is uh, is having a little conniption fit, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let him out the door here. Hang on. Sorry about that. Okay, I am back. Bob is is not having this Copa America. All right, he no. uh, he's, he's, he doesn't believe that it's a true, authentic, and genuine Copa America. I disagree. I think it's uh, just going to be different. So so are we staying in this group, or do you want to jump around and just? Yeah, I mean, you know, let's uh, let's jump around a little bit. You know, there's there there's there's plenty of. Uh, connections. If you, first off, if you haven't followed Copa America, there's plenty of connections uh, that will be made, plenty of uh, MLS players that are involved. Uh, the U.S. in the past has actually participated in Copa Americas. Uh, so there is a, a, a history, uh, not necessarily a long history. Uh, I played in a couple of them. It's a, it's a really, really interesting tournament. And the compare and contrast and the juxtaposition with the Euros that, that, that go on in terms of the environments and the styles and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's fun. And you were earlier in the pod talking about CONCACAF, you know, you, it's hard sometimes to define it and to explain it to people, but you, you know it when you see it. And a lot of, I'm sure a lot of that is also when it comes to Comnable and what happens in some of these, uh, these Copa Americas. And to your point, while it's not going to be perfect and it's not going to be ideal. Hey, I think everybody has come to the realization that, Pretty much nothing that we do in this in this moment in in uh, human existence is going to be real. Uh, is going to be ideal, but you got to be able to bob and weave and adjust. And I think that's what Comnable has done. And I'm not saying that there's not a business behind it, but they've uh, they've adjusted and players ultimately adjust. And when that whistle blows, the adrenaline starts flowing, 
and the opportunity to win something, to win something big that can never be taken away from you uh, for a lot of these players who have grown up watching Copa Americas uh, exist. So I think, and I think it's going to be really fun to see it and albeit in a, in a very unique way. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for MLS connections, Venezuela might be your team. There were eight MLS players in their preliminary squad. We'll see how many make the final squad, but you could have Joseph Martinez, Jose Martinez, Christian Cáceres, um, uh, Yonder Cadiz from Nashville, Sotildo if he's fit. There's a question mark over him, uh, but you could have a lot of guys. Other players to look at, uh, Raul Ruiz Diaz, I expect to be in that Peru squad. Ariaga, his Seattle teammate, could be starting for Ecuador at the back. Um, in terms of a former MLS player, Miguel Almiron will be playing for Paraguay. And, and so, yeah, there's definitely plenty to, to Felipe Mora for Chile. So there, there's, uh, yeah, could be no shortage of MLS guys in this tournament. And yeah, I mean, when I touched on Argentina, I should mention Brazil. Um, the, the most interesting non-Neymar story in this tournament for Brazil might be Gabigol. Um, I've said this before on this podcast, Brazil is a nation full of Alexi Lalases. Uh, people who are fiercely protective of the domestic league. They're, uh, they bristle at Euro snobbery. They resent that the national team is now comprised almost entirely of European-based players. They don't understand why more weight is given to what a player does in Europe than in Brazil. And Gabigol has become the major flashpoint in that debate the last couple of years of what, he, what he's done for Flamengo. And folks in Brazil, they, they see that neither Firmino or Gabriel Jesus is lighting the world on fire while Gabigol is killing it for Flamengo. They don't understand why isn't he starting for the national team. And they've pestered Chichi enough about it that he was compelled to call up Gabigol for this tournament. He started the last qualifier. We'll see if he starts tomorrow against Paraguay. But I think he'll get some chances in this tournament. And it's fascinating because it would be him playing alongside Neymar. And those two have had this kind of star-crossed path where they both came up through the Santos youth system. And Neymar's final match for Santos before going off to Barcelona, he was subbed out in the second half and replaced by a teenage Gabigol who made his first professional appearance that day. And it was intentional. They wanted that symbolism of Gabigol being the guy that was going to take the baton from Neymar. So he's been billed for a long time as the next Neymar. Uh, they've had a weird relationship over the years because Gabigol dated Neymar's sister and they had a messy breakup. And so there's even that element to it, but they seem to be getting along now. And there's a chance they could be, that could be the attack for Brazil in this tournament. So we'll see. But other than that, it's the same guys. I mean, you know, Neymar, Gabriel Jesus, Firmino, Richarlison, uh, Casemiro leading that midfield. Uh, if Thiago so if he's fit and Marquinhos at the back, Allison and goal. So it's it's not a lot of like new exciting. It's kind of the tried and tested, very experienced team. They won it two years ago at home. They're right now leading the qualifiers. So and you're right. They're the betting favorite. And you'd have to say Brazil are the favorites to win this. Can you can you uh, let our listeners and viewers uh, in, in peek behind the curtain a little bit about uh, Titi and and what he is or isn't and this this drama surrounding him both internally and externally how is he viewed I guess by by Brazilians and how is he viewed by the Brazilian players it's it's extraordinary what's happened the last few days you know I've compared it to the the Trump administration where it's hard to keep up with the news because there's so much drama so you know uh, I mean I don't want to make light of this but you know Neymar was accused of uh, sexual harassment by a Nike employee. And everybody thought that was going to be the big dark cloud hanging over the Brazil team in this tournament. And that now feels like eight news cycles ago because so much else has happened. So, I mean, the long and short of it, Chichi, who frankly, for his work as a coach, wasn't that popular, but he's been strengthened in, in a way the last few days because uh, because of just his character he's shown. So he came out in solidarity with the players and expressed concern about the, the staging of this tournament in Brazil and the way the whole thing was handled. And so it then took on this whole political dimension in Brazil because 
uh, the president, Bolsonaro, who's this very divisive figure, he now, in, he, it was his idea to have the term in Brazil. So he views anybody that questions uh, the term being in Brazil as a political opponent of his. And so he's gotten all his supporters to, to, to get after Chichi over this. And so much so that the president of the Brazilian Federation was ready to fire Chichi over this whole thing, over his disapproval of the Copa America being staged in Brazil. But he wasn't able to do it because he himself was fired because in the midst of all this the last few days, uh, he was subjected to a, a sexual assault allegation. And actually, it's more, of a, more than an allegation. The woman that works in the Brazilian Federation actually had audio to, to back up her claim. So it's true. I mean, he's going to be ousted. And I mean, he I won't even get into the details. You can read the article, but he made some terribly lewd remarks to this woman and he needs to go. I mean, it's a despicable person. And so now the guy that was about to fire Chichi got fired himself. And this whole thing has had a weirdly galvanizing effect on the squad. After each of their goals against Ecuador the other night, they all ran to hug Chichi. And he's come out strengthened by all this because most people in Brazil reasonably see that, my, my God, what a disgrace that this man was going to lose his job just because he questioned having the Copa America and, and for political reasons. And, and so now everybody's suddenly sort of gotten behind him more than they were before. So it's been just a surreal last few days reading the Brazilian newspapers and following this story. And, and they're going to have to put all this behind them and go play in this tournament where they're at home and they're the favorites to win it. And we'll see how, how oh all that goes. Oh, my goodness. What? <laughs> as the world turns, this is like a, a soap opera, a novella, well, yeah, I mean, whatever. It's a, Telenovela. Look, Brazil and Argentina in any South American competition, they're the two favorites. Yep. But I would put Uruguay as, as a close third with Suarez and Cavani in that midfield and Bentancourt and Torreira and Valverde. Um uh, and then that's probably it as far as top, top contenders. Then maybe a peg below, you've got Chile and Colombia who, you know, no James for Colombia, but you still got Muriel and Zapata and Cuadrado and enough talent there. Chile are still trying to just squeeze every last drop from that golden generation because nothing too exciting has come up behind them, but you still got Alexis Sanchez there leading the line. And then anybody beyond that, it would be a major shock with all due respect to the Paraguays and Ecuadors and Peru, Bolivia, Venezuela, uh, you know, Peru did get to the final in 2019. So maybe I'm being disrespectful there, but uh, I, I can't see any of those countries winning it. So, I mean, that's where we're at as far as the Copa. Yeah, I think that, that and that's right along the lines of, as I said, the uh, the Fox bet uh, in terms of what they are doing. They got that upper echelon of Brazil and Argentina, then Uruguay, Colombia, Chile, then your Peru's, Ecuador's, and, and maybe Paraguay, and then Venezuela and Bolivia. So I'm, I'm going to pick, I'm going to, you're going to go with Brazil, obviously, and it's an easy one, right? Yeah, although I like this Argentina team. It's like a 1-1-A one, one for me. They're, they're well, okay. If it was just about money, which one would you pick? Yeah, I guess Brazil. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll, then I'll pick, our, uh, I'll pick Argentina, all right? Yeah. And I will I hope that there are no tears, more tears. Uh, but when it comes to a uh, dark horse, I will go with, hmm. How about, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go with Peru, Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Uh, anything else, Mossy, on this Copa America? I mean, obviously, we're, we're going to be knee deep in it here. Uh, come uh, come next week, hopefully. <laughs> I guess we're going to be knee deep in it. Yeah. You never know what's uh, what's going to happen. But anything else before uh, before we move on from Copa America? Uh, no, that's it. All right. Uh, you were mentioning uh, mentioning coaching and the uh, the uh, the drama surrounding coaches and everything like that. Well, the carousel uh, carousel continues to spin around uh, when it comes to the coaching carousel. Um, we're <laughs> Where do you want to start with? Yeah, I mean, I asked Jeff Hernandez to put this in the rundown just so we could pay off our conversation last week because I left some things open-ended and, and some questions were filled. Um, so Real Madrid have hired Carlo Ancelotti to be their next manager. It's interesting because 
we didn't really mention this last week, but Zidane on his way out wrote this scathing letter. It wasn't the usual taking the high road Zidane. He really took the club to task for not giving him enough backing and said he was leaving because he didn't feel enough support. Basically, he was annoyed that, uh, you know, he, he looks over at guys like Pep and Klopp and feels like they've built up enough currency at their clubs that whenever there's a bad run of form or a couple of bad losses, they're not in any danger of losing their jobs. And he felt like he should have had that status at Real Madrid after winning three Champions League titles and two La Liga titles. And yet he never did. It seemed like every time they had a little dip, there were stories about Zidane possibly losing his job. And he felt very uncomfortable. But he wasn't fired. No, yeah, that's interesting. But he just, just the very suggestion that he might be was enough to irritate him. And so he, he, and he made it clear in his letter. He's not, he doesn't need a break. He wants to keep coaching, but he just doesn't want it to be at Real Madrid anymore. And it's well, interesting I mean, it's, because it's, if it's really preemptive in that he thought he was going to get fired, or if it's just uh, poor little Zizu isn't getting enough love and attention uh, and, and pat on the back, I mean, come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting because at one point they it seemed they seem to have dabbled with Antonio Conti, and there there is this feeling that Florentino Perez, for whatever reason, is drawn to disciplinarians. He doesn't like coaches that are too chummy with the players, which is why he's always loved Mourinho. And yet the track record suggests that the coaches that have had the greatest success under him at Real Madrid are the players' coach types: Del Bosque, Ancelotti, Zidane. So he did come to his senses on that and hire Ancelotti, who's a guy personality-wise much more similar to Zidane. But there's some questions. Listen, Ancelotti's resume speaks for itself: three Champions League titles, he's won league titles in four different countries, which doesn't include Spain, by the way. So if he were to win La Liga with Real Madrid, it'd be he'd have league titles in the top five leagues in Europe, which is crazy. But you know, and he's a very different character than Mourinho, much more amiable, obviously. But there is a, the trajectory of their careers is somewhat similar in that there are some questions about whether Ancelotti is still a top coach. And then they might be getting him when he sort of passed it here. And, and you know, I, I think people were frankly surprised that this is the direction they went. I mean, off a 10th place finish with Everton, you get the Real Madrid job. But uh, it's a little weird. But nevertheless, that's that's the route they've chosen. So, so Carlo, you're not buying Carlos. Yeah, I think it's a real question mark. And then, you know, Antonio Conte. Why? Because, because he's too old? Ageist. <laughs> um, Antonio Conte then after not getting the Real Madrid job uh, he considered Tottenham which would have been an amazing coup for Tottenham but had people scratching their heads from Antonio Conte's perspective like really that's where you're, you're going to leave Inter because they're not ambitious enough and, and you want to try to win the Champions League and they're not going to spend enough money to do that and to, to go from there to Tottenham and it seems like Conte came to a census on that and said no wait this is too much of a step down let me wait for something better even if I have to take a year sabbatical or whatever so um and yeah, I'm curious to see how this inter offseason plays out because if it is this huge fire sale, you know, and they've got these guys like Lukaku and Lautaro and Barella and Bastoni and Hakimi who are very much in demand and a bunch of them leave and they take a major step back, he'll be vindicated in his decision. But if it's like one guy they sell, then I'm going to wonder if it was an overreaction on his part and he should have just stayed at Inter and tried to build off what he accomplished this past season. So, uh, but for whatever, but for what it's worth, Antonio Conte and Zidane are both out there looking for jobs and, and uh, you know, I mean, does, anybody, the other guy, does anybody want to coach at Tottenham? Well, the other guy that was mentioned was Pochettino, but uh, PSG have nipped that in the bud. So, I mean, I know Jeff Hernandez still put that in the run now, but it seems like that, that, that's over and he's going to stay at, at PSG. Um, the other interesting thing is there's a guy named Luis Campos I mentioned a couple of weeks ago who is a Portuguese sporting director who was the architect for both Monaco and Lille's league on titles recently. He is very much in demand. In the last few days, I've read Real Madrid for him, Arsenal, PSG, 
Now, Real Madrid and PSG would be really different types of challenges for him. You know, it's not easy that transition when you're sort of a money ball guy at smaller clubs, punching above their weight, finding, finding diamonds and rough to then go to Real Madrid or PSG. And that's a whole different sort of transfer environment. So it's something to keep in mind. But nevertheless, other people seem as high on him as I am because he's now become like this guy that the clubs are falling over themselves to get. So we'll see. I, I, where he look, is. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I've, I've heard this before about, you know, <laughs> going to a bigger club and it's a different environment and different pressures and the dynamic behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. But if all your success is predicated on making the most out of what little you are given, then I know it's theoretical, but in theory, if you are given more, you should be able to make more, right? I mean, this this notion that, oh, you know, now you can't do your job because... Because you actually have the resources and the money to do it. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see. Maybe you're right. Maybe he'll seamlessly shift into that. I mean, you you do agree Real Madrid and PSG employ a different transfer strategy than, say, Lille or Monaco. It is a different. Yeah, it should be even easier for you. <laughs> you don't have to find the diamond in the rough. It, it, the diamonds are just lined up and you get to decide which diamond you want. Oh, my God. But yeah, it's, it's been, Cry me a river. How do you say that in French? I mean, just to wrap, wrap this, it has been uh, amazingly tumultuous, this coaching carousel. Now, one, one coach who is staying is Ronald Koeman at Barcelona. Uh, they came out and said that they're going to stick with him for another year. It wasn't really a ringing endorsement. You came away feeling like they, they would have liked to have made a change. They couldn't find anybody. So I guess we'll stick with Koeman for another year. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you look at top three in the Bundesliga all change, Bayern with Nagelsmann, Leipzig with Jesse Marsh, and Dortmund with Marco Rosa. You know, uh, Lil uh, Christoph Galtier, after winning Ligue 1, dropped the mic and walked away. So they're going to have a new coach. Uh, Lyon with a new coach. They hired Peter Bosch. Uh, you have uh, Tottenham. We're going to have a new coach. That, that's, that's it for the big six in England, but still... Um, Real Madrid with a new manager, and then all the changeover in Italy. I mean, you've got Inter uh, going from Conte to Simone Inzaghi, Juventus going from Pirlo to Allegri. You've got uh, Napoli going from Gattuso to Luciano Spalletti. Uh, Gattuso then went to Fiorentina. You've got uh, Lazio lost Simone Inzaghi, so they hired Maurizio Sarri. Roma bringing in Jose Mourinho. So, I mean, just a lot's going on managerial-wise. It's, it's been already a crazy offseason on, on that front. Well, it'll be fun when these uh, when these leagues kick back up in the fall, and we start attaching the results to these personalities and to these uh, these coaches. And then, as we often do, we start judging them and who got it right and who didn't get it right. Uh, all right, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, we're gonna take another quick break. Uh, when we come back, oh yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, or Ask Mossy, or just send us a question, comment, and concern out there on all the different uh, platforms. We've talked to you before about this telephone number that we have. This week, we're not doing any calls. We didn't get any usable calls. Uh, The telephone number, by the way, is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. 
1-800-273-8597. And you can call and you can hopefully give us your name uh, and tell us where you're calling from and then uh, a question out there. And if it's good, we use it. If it isn't good, you know, we still have plenty of questions to, uh, to call from when it comes to uh, Ask Alexi. All right, Masi, uh, what do we got here in a much more traditional sense coming from the uh, interwebs and the uh, social media platforms out there? Uh, usually we save the fun ones for last, but I'm going to start with this one. Oh, okay. Um, v wants to know, Oreos dipped in milk or nah? <laughs> All right. Nah. Um, I think that it is performative BS. Okay. And I think it rarely lives up to the promise that the uh, decades old marketing campaign that we have had out there um, promises. I believe that if you really want your milk and Oreo mixed, just take your bite from your Oreo and then take a sip. Now, part of it is, look, I know it's each to each their own, do whatever you're going to, you're going to do, but I just don't find it as satisfying. As a matter of fact, I think that you are creating a mess unnecessarily. Some people revel in that mess. I don't. I, I mentioned that I was watching the U.S. game Mossy yesterday in a bar and we ordered some burgers. And uh, I'm a friend of mine, I'm going to say it's a, a friend of mine, even after I explained to you what, what he did, he ordered it with a, um, a fried egg on top and he ordered it extra runny. Now, from a, from a taste perspective, as is the case with milk and Oreos, I have no problem with it. I, I enjoy that. That's fine. But how I go about getting that taste is different, especially if I am creating a mess. I don't like a mess, especially when it comes to food. And, you know, inevitably, this, this burger came with him yesterday and there was yolk all over the place, which I know is what he's going for. But I, I want no part of that because it is just it's it's just too messy, unwieldy. I just I, I don't want I don't want to deal with something like that. So uh, so do what you're going to do with your Oreos. But I would rather, as I said, bite the Oreo and then have the milk. Um, I would rather uh, not have a runny egg all over my sandwich and or hamburger that then I have to uh, attempt to navigate on the plate where stuff's going all over the places. And it's just a, basically a shit show. Mossy, what do you think? Oh, Oreos? Yes. No. Do you even eat Oreos? Uh, I do eat Oreos. I don't dip them in milk. No. You don't dip them in milk no. because you don't like the taste of it um, or you just don't like drinking milk. No, no, I, yeah, that that's never been a combination for me. I know other people do it, but I just like drinking. I just I, like eating Oreos without dipping in anything. I, I mean, I drank so much milk growing up. My mother would buy us two gallon jugs of milk, and I would. I remember chugging it after. It was ridiculous. I don't know. <laughs> for those of you that are lactose intolerant, there, you're probably going to have to turn this off. I remember chugging those two liter bottles of milk as if it was water. It was a form of my hydration when I was young. Oh, the amount of milk that we drank. Anyway, Mossy, what else we got? Uh, next up is Michael Bratcher, who asks, Alexi, what is the MLS newly proposed third tier league for? Okay, so news is, uh, has trickled out here that MLS is in the midst of, uh, of creating a, a bridge, if you will, um, and what would amount to a third division type of competitive league in an effort to, like I said, provide that bridge, an in-house bridge, because it would be part of the MLS structure and that bridge between, you know, the academy teams that they have. And then ultimately, I guess, the senior team uh, for 
all the developing MLS talent. And we've talked so much about how much money and resources is being spent on this development of talent, but you got to have the infrastructure and you have to have places for them to play. In doing this, they're also going to obviously create more content, which can be beneficial to broadcast deals. And they've been all very open about this is what they want to do. Um, they want to, uh, you know, bring and share uh that footprint of lower division soccer, but bring it into MLS and under that business umbrella. And, and in doing so, create a, you know, a competitive option out there for, for the consumer. And they're going to create a testing platform. We've seen MLS in the past use, uh, use the MLS system, if you will, to do some different things when it comes to uh, testing or evolving or being guinea pigs for stuff that they're doing. Uh, and I think ultimately from a business perspective, like I said, it increases that portfolio and therefore the value of the portfolio is of MLS. But also it, uh, it, it, it potentially encroaches, if you will, or uh, provides an alternative in some markets out there possibly that, uh, that have teams. I mean, MLS is very, very clear that they are a business and they want to, as much as they possibly can, drive the business of soccer going forward in the United States and Canada. And they are going to do everything that they possibly can to have their fingers in as many different pots as possible to be able to control, uh, to control that at multiple different uh, levels. And this is just another in that effort to do it. Uh, will it hurt? Um, or destroy existing teams and clubs and you know uh, infrastructure that exists out there. I don't think so. I think that they're. I think the two can be aligned and can coexist in different places. But there will be competition at times for the hearts and minds of people that uh, are potential customers of lower division types of, of soccer. You know, the other thing is, and we've seen this. When you are a satellite, we see it with MLS even, there is a perception that you are of lower quality and that you are not necessarily, well, you're not a standalone type of team and you are looked upon that as just the, the satellite and therefore inferior than the major product, which in this case would be the, the big MLS team. I'll be interested to see how a, a customer or consumer out there looks at this when they are looking at their their landscape and, and trying to uh, figure out what they're going to buy. And if they, if they look at these teams in whatever form that they show up with as suitable alternatives to what they maybe have been spending their money on uh, and their time and effort, or if they say, you know what, that's not something that I want to do. If I want to, if I want to support an MLS team, I'm going to support the ultimate uh, MLS team over there. And I don't want a knockoff or a, smaller, lower division type of MLS light team. But MLS wants to bring it all in-house, and so that's, uh, that's what they're doing. It'll be interesting to see ultimately how big this is and therefore how much of an impact it has for the MLS teams, for MLS as a whole, and for the, uh, you know, the soccer landscape out there. What else, Mossy? And last question, Alex Glissman. Um, why can't CONCACAF or FIFA take a tougher stand against poor fan behavior? If this was an NBA or NFL game, obviously he's referring to the, the U.S.-Mexico game last night, we would be talking permanent suspensions, yet it seems like people weren't even kicked out. Ah, 
Well, we mentioned we were going to talk about the uh, the crowd last night in Denver. You know, hold on, Masi. This is this is a good another good example of maybe something that we hold on. We're gonna we're gonna come back, and I'm gonna use this as my one for the road here. Okay, so we're gonna take a real quick break, and when I come back, uh, I will as the uh, as the end of each podcast, I will give you my one for the road. But I'm going to use his question to talk about the crowd uh, in the uh, in the one for the road. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back, Mossy. And what was his name uh, again? Alex Glissman. All right, Alex, uh, you are you are asking a question, and you are examining something that a lot of people this morning, Monday, are uh, are looking about and talking about, and that was the <clears throat> the behavior of the crowd in Denver last night at the final of the uh, of the Nations League. And th- you know, this will be my one for the road. I, I have I've been around a long time. I have seen how this sport has grown both on and off the field and these environments that we have created and how wonderful they can be and how much they, how much they have grown uh, as the, you know, the, the soccer fan base in the United States has grown. It's become so much more uh, passionate and educated and discerning. And, but when it comes to US-Mexico, we all know that in many places, if that game happens, it is an away game for the uh, the U.S. Now, that doesn't mean that the stadium isn't packed with Americans, okay? But there are, because of our incredible diversity in our country, there are uh, Americans, uh, fellow countrymen of mine, that when the United States is playing in Mexico, because of their history um, and because of their lineage uh, and because of their family, they feel more comfortable uh, uh, supporting the Mexican national team. It's fine. No problem with that. I, I, I honestly have no problem with that. It's something I've tried to convert as many over the years as I possibly can, both on the field and off the field, but I recognize it. And, and I have, you know, I have no problem with it. I understand the draw. Okay. But what happened last night in that stadium? It's not an anomaly. It's not, a, it's not an aberration. We have seen it happen before with regards to the Mexican national team playing in the United States. And so when people are throwing stuff on the field, and look, I, I get, you know, the one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. This wasn't, this wasn't one bad apple. You can go see the pictures for, uh, for yourself. But as I said last night on, uh, on Twitter, I thought that this was... The, the behavior of the fans in the stadium last night in Denver was disgraceful. And I thought it was disrespectful uh, to the sport that we all know and love and ultimately to our country because this was a game that was happening in Denver, Colorado. And this was a stadium full of Americans who felt that that was appropriate. And it's not appropriate. It's never appropriate. Okay. And unfortunately, we, we see it time and time again. Now, to your question about how you police it. All right. Well, you know, we've seen it when it comes to trying to stamp out the, uh, the offensive uh, chant that has happened for so many years uh, on goal kicks in these games. And you you know, you have to put in place and they do have protocol in place. And we saw it even in this tournament at times. And is it making a dent? It's trying to because you're faced with the fact that how do we change 
the behavior and alter the behavior of people and let people know that that's not appropriate and that is not acceptable in this type of uh, forum. And the punishment has to be there. And unfortunately, because there are so many people, you can't single out and, and, uh, and punish every single person, especially when masses and crowds are doing something. You got to punish the people, uh, the people on the field. And, you know, they, at times they stopped the game yesterday to make sure that that was happening. It wasn't necessarily stopped for the throwing of objects, uh, throwing objects on the field. Now, at times I've talked about these environments that I've played in. And yes, I will readily admit that there is a part of me that has that punk ethos and enjoyed the bathing in the hatred and in that sports um, forum. Uh, that we talk about, but in no way, shape or form would I ever condone anybody doing that any place in the world. Okay. And so when I see that last night, as I said before, it, it hurts me because I think that it makes us. And when I say us Americans and America look bad in that situation, because you are representative of what we do in the United States when it is happening in a stadium, okay? And it makes me look bad. It makes our sport look bad, as I said, and ultimately it makes our, our country look bad. So what can you do? Yeah, you can punish teams. But by the way, this was a game that was being played, as I said, <laughs> in the United States. And you can punish federations. You can find federations. But ultimately it has to come down to the human beings that are involved and each individual human being, even within a crowd setting and a, uh, and we know that when you get in crowds, sometimes you do things that you would never think of doing alone, but it comes down to individuals saying in that moment, no, I may hate this team or I hate this player, uh, or I'm angry that my team lost, but that doesn't give me a right individually to throw stuff at players, to throw stuff on the field, and to behave in that manner. And you can be pissed off, and you can scream and yell and, and do all, all things like that. But it was, as I said, it was not surprising. But again, it was, it was disappointing. And I don't know what the answer is other than teach your children well, <laughs> you know? And None of us out here are, I'm, are saints. We've all made mistakes before, but this is habitual. I mean, this is a consistent type of thing. And like in, like in a lot of things, you have to put the onus on the individual, especially in the crowd. And I tell my kids all the time, there's going to be times when you are in a crowd and you are going to go along or want to go along with it. And if you recognize that it's wrong, you got to be able to stand up individually and say, no, I'm not going to do that. And you shouldn't do that. And self-police. And it's easy to say because I get it. I've been in crowds before. And that crowd mentality that takes, takes over, that makes people do things that they normally wouldn't do. But it was disappointing. Um, it was great pictures and, you know, the, the, uh, the scene that it was in a strange way only made what was our, arguably one of the great U.S.-Mexico matchups that much more interesting and colorful. But I'd, have, I'd much rather it be much more boring um, than have players have stuff thrown at them. So hopefully 
we get better and better with each generation um, when it comes to supporting the U.S. You know, I, like I said, I want to prove to people that we are worthy of their support. But whether you're supporting the U.S. or whether you're supporting Mexico or any team out there, it doesn't matter. No matter how pissed off you are, it doesn't give you a right. And in no way, shape or form should it ever be condoned uh, throwing stuff uh, at, uh, at players. All right, Mossy, anything uh, before we move on? That's it. All right, listen, we come to the end of yet another uh, State of the Union. We appreciate everybody downloading and reviewing and subscribing and rating and doing all that kind of stuff. As we talked about this pod, there's so much soccer this summer that's, ha- that's happening and that's going to happen um, with, uh, with Euros and with Copa America and with Gold Cup, uh, with the Olympics. Um, you know, we'll be working uh, the U.S. Women's National Team this game uh, as they prepare for another Olympics. So men's, women's, all sorts of stuff uh, going on. I hope you enjoy the week. We will talk again uh, next week. At that point, we will be, <laughs> fingers crossed, into Copa America 2021. All right. Until next week, uh, have a wonderful, uh, safe, and sane week. And as always, size the day. We'll